This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to She Done It. I'm Caroline Crampton. This is another episode of Queens of Crime at War, a series looking at what the best writers from the golden age of detective fiction did once that period came to an end with the start of the Second World War. If you haven't listened to any of the previous episodes, you might want to go back and catch up after you've heard this one. So far, I've covered Agatha Christie, ECR Lorac, Marjorie Allingham and Josephine Tay. Today, our subject is a writer who had a very, very long publishing career, almost the longest of any of the queens of crime I'm talking about in this series. She stretched herself between two very different worlds, the country of her birth and the place where the golden age of detective fiction was in full swing. Her fiction pulls in these two directions too, which is in part what makes it so interesting. And as the Second World War kept her grounded in her hometown for a long period, those years informed what she would go on to write about her surroundings and her compatriots for years to come. She is, of course, Nio Marsh. The She Done It Pledge Drive has now met its goal. We've added over 100 new members to the She Done It Book Club, and I'd like to say a huge thank you to those of you who have joined, donated, and shared during this series. It will all greatly help me fund the podcast for another year. Now that the goal is met, I'm afraid that the buy one membership, give another as a gift for free offer is over for another year. It's been great to see so many people taking advantage of that. However, you can still give any book club membership as a gift in the normal way, if you want to, by visiting shedoneitbookclub.com gift. That link will also be in the episode description. And since the support has been so enthusiastic this year, I'm going to put on a special Christmas live stream just for book club members on December the 15th at 6pm UK time. Lots of listeners got in touch to say that they enjoyed the episode with my husband Guy a few weeks ago. So we're going to host it together talk a bit about Christmas mysteries and answer members' questions. If you can't make it live, it will be available to watch back afterwards. But the whole thing is only for She Done It Book Club members, so make sure you join before the 15th if you'd like to come. Thank you again for your support. Now, let's get on with the episode. Nio Marsh always inhabited two worlds. She was born in Christchurch, New Zealand in 1895, to a father who had emigrated there from England as a young man, and a mother who had English parents. On both sides of her family, then, she inherited memories and ideas about England as her point of origin, even though she lived half a world away. She made her first trip to England in 1928, when she was in her early 30s. She stayed there for several years, forging close connections with the Rhodes family, who were well-to-do Brits who'd spent time in New Zealand in the early 1900s. Through them, 
she was introduced to many of the settings that would later appear in her crime fiction, country houses, seaside resorts and London society parties. It was during this first day that Marsh wrote what would become her first detective novel, A Man Lay Dead, and she also wrote travel articles about Britain, for publications back in New Zealand. Looking back at her life now, it seems like she was keen to put down roots in London, but in 1932 she was recalled home suddenly because her mother was very ill with cancer. After Rose Marsh passed away in November of that year, Nio remained in Christchurch for several years to keep her father company. She renewed her connections there, getting involved with local theatre companies, exhibiting her paintings, and writing more of the crime novels that were beginning to sell well as the demand for detective fiction grew through the 1930s. She became an established figure in the arts in Christchurch, a position that she would grow into over the following decades, and with which she is still identified today. I didn't really discover her as a crime writer. I first knew of her when I was a student. I went to Teachers College in Christchurch, which was her hometown. And she was a figure of you know, great fame there. And not long before, probably about 10 years before I was there, the uh, university theatre had been named the Dame Nyo Marsh Theatre or the Nyo Marsh Theatre. Maybe I don't think she was a dame at that stage. And so, and I was doing some drama courses at Teachers College, which used the university. So she came to a couple of the productions, none that I was in, but she came to several of my uh, productions, particularly the Shakespeare productions that friends of mine were in. This is Gail Pittaway, a senior lecturer specialising in creative writing at the Wakato Institute of Technology in Hamilton, New Zealand. She has used Nio Marsh's work extensively in her teaching and research, and as you've just heard, is able to give us an insight into how Marsh was regarded and appreciated on her own home turf, as it were. Best of all, because Marsh lived well into her 80s, Gail actually has some first-hand impressions of her to share. I remember seeing her, and she was quite a terrifyingly imposing person. She was very tall, quite stooped, you know, by the time I saw her. And I seem to recall with some kind of fur and, and a hat and gloves and driving an extraordinarily large English car, I think it was an English car, you know, which just kind of swept and pulled up outside the main entrance of the theatre, which, you know, no one else would dare to do, but it was her theatre. So she was, she was very posh. <laughs> and Christchurch, of all our cities, prides itself on its Englishness. It, it's got schools that are private schools that are very much fashioned upon the English public school model and so on. And beautiful stone buildings, which, of course, have suffered terribly after the earthquakes. But she came from that very English-identified New Zealand family life. So I think that she, she thought like an English person. She was that older generation, too, for whom England was still home. Nayo Marsh renewed her acquaintance with her other home, England, in 1937, when she once again made the long voyage from Christchurch to London. Already the author of four well-reviewed detective novels, she enjoyed her new status in literary London. She became better acquainted with her literary agent, Edmund Cork, who was also Agatha Christie's agent, as it happened, and she even attended the inauguration of E.C. Bentley as the new president of the Detection Club, 
who had succeeded to that title after the death of G.K. Chesterton in 1936. Because she lived so far away, Marsh was not eligible to be invited for full membership. At that time, members were required to attend and contribute to fairly frequent meetings. But she was, from the late 1930s onwards, a regular invitee when she was in the country. This trip lasted over a year, and again she spent much of the time with her friends the Rhodes, both at different places in England and travelling in Europe. But things were very different in the late 1930s to how she remembered them in the late 1920s. She spent three months travelling with friends in Germany, Austria and northern Italy, which gave her a close-up view of a Europe on the brink of war. As a tourist in Nazi territory, she was treated to only the best sites and hotels, but there was a dark side visible too, already. She met people who greeted each other with Heil Hitler, and heard the wonders of Mussolini's regime extolled in detail. In one place, she even saw a pair of brown shirts, likely Nazi paramilitaries, posting a notice about how an elderly Jewish couple in the town were to be ostracised by the rest of the community. Writing about the incident in her autobiography, Black Beach and Honeydew, decades later, Marsh denounced it as obscene, and recalled how she had struggled to sleep for the rest of the time she was there. She returned to Christchurch in 1938. There can be no doubt that she intended to go back to England soon, but in actual fact, because of the outbreak of war the following year, it would be over a decade before she made the journey again. This separation, the need to stay put, throws her conflicted ideas of where home was into sharp relief. Here's Gail again to explain how that resonates in New Zealand in more detail. I grew up at a time when some people were still referring to England as home because my parents didn't. They were both kind of third or fourth generation Kiwis. But certainly some of our teachers talked about England as home. And we certainly had a very colonial connection with England. I mean, I'm, I was born in the, uh, the mid-1950s. And so that attachment to home and that, that desire to stay close to Britain. And, you know, for example, our magazines are still full of the royal family and so on. So, you know, there's still a really strong connection there. So Naira Marshall, of course, was no exception. And, you know, she would have spent probably more than half a year each year in Britain for, uh, you know, at least half her life. And then three months back in New Zealand producing plays and fostering once she'd matured and had come back to look after her mother and then started commuting backwards and forwards. So she was clearly in love with Britain and she identified herself very strongly with both cultures. And that's a lovely anecdote about her, isn't it? In Britain, she always, if she stayed in a hotel, she always signed her New Zealand address. And in New Zealand, she always signed her British address in a hotel. Marsh reflects on this dual identity in her autobiography which was first published in 1965. She writes of her community in New Zealand that we are often told by English people how very English New Zealand is, their intention being complimentary. I think we are more like the English of our pioneers' time than those of our own. If you put a selection of people from the British Isles into Antipodean cold storage for a century and a half, then open the door, we are what would emerge. Even as war was raging and the world was beginning to grapple with the colonial legacy of the British Empire, 
Marsh and her contemporaries in Christchurch remain very close to the idea of England as the old country or home in a positive sense. And now, because of the war, she was kept away from that place where she had had so many of her formative life experiences, written her first novel, opened her own business, lived an independent life. She had always been a great one for travel, describing her desire to get out into the world at one point as a constant itch. But now she was stuck at home, and not even necessarily the home where she wanted to be. Her response to this separation was to give her imagination free reign in her fiction. The run of detective novels that she published after returning in 1938 all immortalised some aspect of England that she had encountered on that trip. Overture to Death takes place in a classic rural English village. Death at the Bar features a remote Devon fishing village based on a place where she had taken a holiday. Surfeit of Lampfreys contains an aristocratic family closely based on her friends, the Rhodes, and Death and the Dancing Footman takes the reader to a posh country house of the kind that she had visited. While she's writing these oh-so-English detective novels, Marsh is, of course, actually in New Zealand, where the experience of the early years of World War II is rather different to what she had encountered in Europe. Initially, the war felt remote to Marsh and her fellow New Zealanders, like something that they had understood in principle but had little personal contact with. Marsh's father Henry enthusiastically dug a shelter in their garden that they could occupy in the unlikely-seeming event of an air raid or attack. But she noted in her autobiography years later that his construction was far from sound, the whole thing would likely have fallen in on their heads if they'd actually tried to use it. This seems to have characterised those early months for her, There was plenty of talk of war and people wanted to do things, but its effects weren't being fully felt yet. But that changed in the early 1940s, when many thousands of people joined up to fight overseas, and the shortages of goods that were usually imported to the islands began to be felt. Marsh herself signed up to be a Red Cross ambulance driver, ferrying the wounded soldiers who were arriving back at Christchurch's docks to the hospital. What she heard of the war in Europe from news reports and her friend's letters fired her sense of patriotism for this place she could no longer visit anymore. Her correspondence from the time is full of her apologies and even expressions of guilt that she cannot be there in England with her friends, experiencing air raids and rationing. This enforced stay in New Zealand opened up new opportunities to her, however. She was asked by her publishers, Collins, to write the text for an illustrated guide to New Zealand that they were putting out. And in putting it together, she travelled around her own country extensively for the first time, something that she would put to good use in her detective fiction later on. She also became a broadcaster for the first time, delivering talks on the radio about her travels in Britain and Europe, which were also then published in print. These were incredibly popular, and elevated her to a level of fame in New Zealand that she had not enjoyed previously. But I think what unites both of these developments is the fact that Marsh was always observing her own country from the outside. Her travel book required her to look at New Zealand and describe it for a largely British and American audience, and her radio talks were similarly based on her experiences as an observer. Even with the success she had had in both of her homes, Her identity, and indeed her loyalty, remained divided between the two. And there'll be more on that after the break. (laughs) 
In History's Secret Heroes, Helena Bonham Carter shines a light on extraordinary stories from World War II. This is a series that tells the tales from the Second World War that are unjustly less well-known than the oft-repeated histories of that time. Personally, I tend to default to the position that military history, or the history of wars as it is usually told, is just not for me. But diving into this series has shown me that I can be wrong about that, and that maybe I just haven't been experiencing the right sort of history. The brand new second series of History's Secret Heroes is out now, and it's absolutely full of brilliant episodes that had me gripped from start to finish. In it, we learn how a single woman, Christine Granville, skied into occupied Poland and gathered essential intelligence for the Allies, which changed the course of the war. We also look at how Raymond Gorem used his circus skills to break in and out of a Nazi internment camp to sneak in food and supplies for his family, and how a young Filipino woman named Josefina Guerrero took advantage of her health condition to join the resistance and become one of the most consequential spies of World War II. I'm especially drawn to stories about code-breaking, as I love puzzles, and to me it often feels like the real-life counterpart to solving a mystery. I loved the episode called The Unbreakable Navajo Code, about a group of Native American soldiers who devised a code for the Allies' use, and I also really enjoyed the one about Emily Anderson, an Irish cryptanalyst who worked both at Bletchley Park in the UK and then in Cairo to decrypt vital intelligence. Helena Bonham Carter voices all of these episodes in a way that makes you feel like they're just being whispered directly into your ear by someone who really knows how to tell a dramatic tale to full effect. There are experts interviewed, but also friends, family members and witnesses, so each story feels personal and intimate as well as historically significant. Episodes will be released on Mondays, wherever you get your podcasts. But if you're in the UK, you can listen to the full series now, first on BBC Sounds. Lyo Marsh wrote 33 novels featuring her detective, Chief Inspector Roderick Allen of Scotland Yard. Perhaps in an indication of where her heart truly lay, the vast majority of them take place in England, with only four being set in New Zealand. Interestingly, these are spaced out throughout her writing career, and thus give us the opportunity to glimpse both the way her country was changing and the way her own attitudes to it shifted through her life. Alan first comes to New Zealand in his fifth outing, 1937's Vintage Murder. A convalescent detective travelling for his health and encountering murder en route was not an especially original setup at this point in detective fiction's golden age, but Marsh's twist of having the crime take place in a travelling theatre company certainly elevated it. Having both Alan, the classic upper-class Englishman, and all the class distinctions contained within the company displaced to New Zealand, gave Marsh plenty of scope to interrogate the differences and frictions between these two places. Her most recent biographer, Joanne Drayton, who you can hear on this podcast if you scroll back to episode 13, describes this book as Marsh's first proper airing of New Zealand's problematic relationship with Britain as mother country to some, and oppressive colonial power for others. Alan is anxious that the local police shouldn't think he is trying to make himself superior to them, and at the same time, he feels out of his depth, not understanding the nuances and vocabulary of New Zealand English. Language was always a preoccupation of Marsh's, and in this book, she uses it as a way of showing difference and status. She makes quite a lot about our accents and uh, the way we speak, and it's very noticeable in the first couple with Alan sort of saying, oh, is it? Or things like, there's a saying someone says, and I can't remember, but it's something like, 
crikey or corker or something, but there's a one word and it stands for everything. So it means it's good, it's bad, it's indifferent, you know, everything. And there's the kind of the monosyllabic Kiwi male, you know, particularly agrarian Kiwi male comes through. But, you know, you could probably put that person in Somerset or somewhere, you know, an agrarian setting somewhere. I think some of the, the phrases would be difficult. Gail does recognise the language that Marsh gives to some of her New Zealand characters, though, even if it does feel a little dated from today's perspective. I'm really pleased that she's put it in because it is quite authentic to the time. You know, my dad used to use some of the sayings that are that are in the books, you know, that and he and his mates would talk and you'd they'd never say a thing between them. You know, like, how are you going, Bert? Yep. Yeah. yeah, she's a bit of all right, yeah. You know, and it was never actually they were probably talking about the weather. It could have been talking about a car. I don't think they were talking about their wives, you know, but it was just that kind of incoherent, phatic communion that that I think is quite a strong feature of New Zealand conversation and certainly of a certain era of New Zealand, particularly male conversation. Later on, during the Second World War, Alan returns to New Zealand for two more novels, 1943's Colour Scheme and 1945's Died in the Wool. The war is present in these books, not least because Alan is there because he's part of a counter-espionage mission aimed at flushing out Nazi activity and sympathy in the country. But in both cases, it is a regular murder that he ends up detecting against that wartime background. And in both books, Gail feels, the landscape of New Zealand becomes a character in its own right, a kind of gothic background to the death and destruction of the main plot. Her description of that very treeless landscape, it was, you know, a burned, slashed and burned by generations of pioneers and travellers and before that by the Māori. And so the, the trees have been taken off the mountains and so you just have these long sweeping valleys and then high piercing mountains and long river valleys. And it's very isolated, very beautiful and very awe-inspiring indeed. And I think she has captured that. There's a real love for the landscape in that. Whereas in the others, she sort of sees things like the volcanic plateau. You know, they're all genuine scenarios and I think she's wanting to to say well this is a very exotic aspect of New Zealand we have our volcanic plateau and we do have boiling mud pools we have geysers and they are happening and and they were much more accessible to people in the times that she's writing about nowadays we realize that people have often contaminated you know we're walking and traipsing across these heritage nature sites you know they've been quite damaged and so they're a lot more protected and also, of course, they're very dangerous. So we have fences around them to stop people from falling in and so on. And they are very hot. So, yeah, that, so her representation of the New Zealand landscape is authentic and, you know, in description. Even though they're fictional landscapes, she's drawing on authentic connections. In her autobiography, Marsh positions herself as an outsider in her own land because of her long absences in England. On my return to New Zealand after five years, I found myself looking at my own country, however superficially, from the outside in, she writes. It's possible to sense that perspective in the way that she views the place through Roderick Allen's eyes too. It's significant, I think, that she doesn't give the main role in her New Zealand novels 
to some new local character. She would rather look in from the outside. Part of this is down to her own attitudes, but some of it comes from her experience in visual art, Gail says. Marsh was an accomplished painter, as well as a writer and a theatre director. She gave this talent for looking to Alan's wife, Agatha Troy. I think that's the painterly eye, with to some extent. I think that she always she has that observer's eye as a painter herself, and often when he is reflecting on the landscape, particularly you know as the novels develop, he's thinking what Troy might think, his painter wife, and so I think that's part of it. And I think it's a way she realises it's not a New Zealand audience. Her main audience is an audience that is an outside audience. And so she needs to have an intermediary who is more accessible in sentiment and and sensibilities, I think, you know, as an outsider than she might even be. In these novels set in New Zealand that she wrote during World War II, Marsh also gives a fairly prominent role to Maori characters. This can be hard to pass for readers today, who might on the one hand be pleased to see even some recognition or record of indigenous people from the 1940s, but on the other hand would be right to find Marsh's portrayal of them somewhat dated and ignorant. I think people are quite divided. I mean, it's really still crime readers who read her and the readers of Cozy Crime. And she's definitely kind of an aspect there. You know, she's settled there in time as... Someone, although her writing career expanded a very long, you know, 50 years almost, or 45 years, and doesn't necessarily reflect a great deal of changes in the society, but is quite accurate to that very post-war, pre-war and post-war New Zealand that was still very colonial in its, in its attitudes. And I think people are a little bit embarrassed about that, about her in that respect, and particularly they, she's being criticised for her representation of Māori. But, you know, anyone who isn't Māori is treated, uh, you know, criticised in that way because we now have got such a strong groundswell of identity, you know, Indigenous writers who have identified themselves and, and claimed that space. So there's an awkwardness about it, and she's very much in that transitional period between the kind of exoticizing if that's a word, you know, of the other and the representation of, I mean, I think she, her writing about Māori is very sympathetic, but that's definitely one of the big areas that her, that people ask, wince about in New Zealand. So it just depends on who you're talking to. It isn't quite as simple as to say that Nio Marsh's depiction of the Māori is stuck in its time in the way that some of the portrayals of minorities in detective fiction from the Golden Age era is. There is a sense in which she is trying to empathise, Gail says, even if it is done in a clumsy, almost patrician way. I think it's in Vintage Murder. She's got the, an elder of the local Māori tribe called Rangi Te Pohika, this is his name, Rangi Te Pohika, who uh, advises about some of the artefacts in particular the greenstone tiki that is seen as, a, as an omen, an ominous jewel. And he says this, I picked it up and I'd never noticed it before, but he says, you know, that for New Zealand, for the visiting, you know, Europeans or the Pākehā, our things are play things, but we would laugh in the same way when 
with our first encounter with the Bible. So that's one thing he says, you know, that we're, there's that, the contrast in cultures. But the other thing is, he says, you know, and you, the, you English or you Pākehā give your children pretty Māori names. Well, of course, Nayo's name is a pretty Māori name. And I'd never picked that up before, but, you know, she's named after a very pretty tree. Well, actually, it's got very insignificant flowers, but it's a very pretty tree. <laughs> so she has a Māori name, which is interesting that, you know, so she feels some connection, a nominal connection, obviously, but also she feels some connection with the land beyond the fact that she comes from here. Naya Marsh didn't return to her other home, England, until 1950. And when she did, she found it a very different place to the one she had left in 1938. She was different too. She was both a relatively well-known writer now, and also one who had become firmly embedded in her hometown in New Zealand. For the rest of her life, she still moved between the two places, but the way in which her reputation as a theatre director survives in Christchurch is perhaps testament to the commitment she made to the arts there. Interestingly, Roderick Allen didn't return to New Zealand for many decades after 1945's Died in the Wool. It wasn't until 1980 that Marsh brought him back to the Southern Hemisphere, this time in company with his wife, for her penultimate novel, Photo Finish. It's a very different kind of plot to the classic Golden Age tropes of her earlier work, but there is just a little bit of evidence that Marsh's attitudes had moved on, in keeping with the greater recognition of Māori culture that was developing at the time. There's a big gap between Died in the Wool and Photo Finish, and so there's just there's an, a recollection, and Alan says to Erua, I, oh, is this a Māori legend? Now, I was told many things about Māori traditions by Rangete Pohika, and he's, oh, yes, he's a very prominent elder. Yes, very good. So he's, he's, there's a compliment being paid back to a fictional character from some 40 years earlier, maybe, or even longer. That's about the only moment of recognition, and it's like it's a little afterthought in that story. Nayo Marsh's portrait of New Zealand is individual and partial, entirely coloured by her own background, and should be recognised as such. But as Gail has shown us, it is authentic to that time in which Marsh was prevented by the war from travelling to England, her other homeland. Both of the places she loved best live on, as she loved them, in her fiction. This episode was written and narrated by me, Caroline Crampton. You can find details about all the books I mentioned in the description for this episode or at shedoneitshow.com slash queensofcrimeatwar. I publish transcripts of every episode, including this one. Find them all at shedoneitshow.com slash transcripts. She Done It is edited by Ewan McAleese. Original music by Martin Zoltz-Austwick. Member support for the She Done It book club from Connor McLaughlin. The podcast's advertising partner is Multitude. Thanks for listening. The next episode in the Queens of Crime at War series will be out in a week's time.
Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.